If you could, please stand for the reading of God's word this morning. We're in Hebrews chapter 13. Our verses are 18 through the end of the book, 25. We'll read that together. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you the more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. You should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. Greet all your leaders and all the saints, those who come to Italy and send you greetings. Grace be with you all. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, we did it. We made it to the end of the book of Hebrews. Thanks be to God. What a beautiful book. Um, Our text this morning uh, can be divided into three sections. We have first our writer's request for prayer. Then we see him offer a prayer of benediction. The word benediction just comes from the Latin word meaning blessing. So he prays at the end of his great text, a prayer of blessing over the audience, over the church. And finally, he gives us his last greeting. We're going to look this morning primarily at the prayer of blessing in verses 20 through 21, but I want to quickly acknowledge a verse uh, in uh, 18 as well. But before we go there, I want to draw your attention to the end, uh, to the final selection, the ending of the book. Our author makes a surprising claim. Maybe you saw it as we read it this morning. He says, I've written to you briefly. (laughs) Really? You consider this to be a brief letter, writer of Hebrews. Interesting. In the age of text messages and and tweets, would any of us read through the book of Hebrews and say, well, that was brief? I don't think so. Um, It takes anywhere from 30 to to 40 minutes to read it from cover to cover. As Calvary Redeeming Grace, here are some things I want to give praise to God for before we dive into the letter. First, we've been in this book for one year and one week. Thanks be to God. In addition to some of the Advent series that we did and a couple of one-off messages, this is our 41st sermon in the book of Hebrews. Now, if you think that's just too much, too many sermons for one book of the Bible, trust me when I say we could have made this easily much longer. Um, a, a mentor, a teacher, a preacher, of uh, someone I look up to, um, John Piper, preached 52 sermons through the book. Uh, the preeminent Puritan scholar, preacher John Owen, wrote seven volumes uh, just on the book of Hebrews alone. That's 4,000 pages. In fact, if you took all 12 volumes and weighed them, they'd be over 12 pounds. So get reading. That's a lot of paper. But this is what happens when you begin to reflect and teach and preach on the superiority of Christ, which is the overarching theme of our book. What we walk away from this morning 
is a deep dive into a Christologically rich text that, is a, that presents a life-altering truth of our Savior Jesus Christ, that he is superior. He is superior to angels, we're told. He is superior to all the previous leaders of God's people. He is superior to the temple in its sacrificial system. Christ is it. He is the final prophet, priest, and king, we're told. We no longer look forward to these things and hope for these things. They are all finished, fulfilled, and presently ministering to his people in Christ. But when you consider what the writer of Hebrews attempted, it's astonishing that he's able to do so much in just 13 chapters. Praise be to God. Now we're going to change gears and introduce our text this morning. Our text this morning is about peace, from my understanding. I long for peace. I long for the renewal of all things. I hate sin. I hate what it's done to this world. I hate that it has blinded the eyes of man that they do not know their creator. I hate when people die in their sin unrepentant. But I'm so thankful that we have a God who says in Ezekiel 33:11, "Say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. For why will you die, O house of Israel?" Our peace was broken when sin entered the world. Since then, man's attempts to store peace in their own strength has failed. Governments go to war in order to find peace. New philosophies of man only bring about new forms of slavery. We put our hopes in just a little bit more education and that the next generation would not in their spiritual blindness consider foolishness, foolishness to be wisdom. Yet this does not lead us to peace. And proof of this is the 20th century alone. Certainly since the beginning of Western civilization nearly 2,500 years ago in Greece, we would have developed to be a more peaceful people. But the numbers don't lie. Statistically speaking, more of the world's population has died of collective violence in the past 100 years than any other century in recorded history. As I'm speaking right now, there are 110 armed conflicts currently happening simultaneously around the world. Yet again, this week marks the one year of Russia invading Ukraine. And even more, just this last week, Russia backed out of a peace treaty concerning nuclear weapons. Where is the peace? Why are we not progressing towards peace? This morning, we'll be reminded, we'll be encouraged in our text that peace is more than possible. In fact, peace has already arrived, church. Here's the main point of our text. Peace is only found in God through Christ. And we must believe in this peace and we must proclaim this peace. I'll say it again. 
Peace is only found in God through Christ. We must believe in this peace and we must proclaim this peace. Maybe you hear this point and you think two things at the same time. You think, amen. Amen, Robert. And you also think at the same time, yeah, but we already know that. That's why we're here. We're Christians. Of course we believe that peace is through Christ and God. Well, if you're thinking that as I did at the beginning of the week as I was preparing this sermon and meditating and, and studying and spent many, much time in prayer, I want to encourage you with this, this understanding that came to me, which is this. Peace is only found in God through Christ. Amen. We must believe it more. And we must proclaim it more. Without the peace of God in us, we are unable to be peacemakers. Because the greatest need is to have reconciliation between man and God. How can people be peacemakers? First, a person must be at peace before they spread peace themselves. Though we don't know the, who the author of Hebrews is, as he doesn't give us his name, it is safe to assume that he is the leader of the church who is the audience of the letter. And as a leader of God's people, he exemplifies the necessity of prayer. He, he gives us the, the necessity of right doctrine, to believe well the right things. And, and he presses into us the need for a healthy church community. And he puts all this in at the end of this discourse. I want to start with his uh, direction on prayer in verses 18 and 19. So read with me. In verse 18, he says, Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you, the more, I urge you more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. Why ask for prayer? Might sound like a silly question, but let me put a little context to that question. We believe that this person requesting prayer is already a pastor of the flock. We know from the text he's already living honorably. He has a clear conscience, and he's requesting more prayer. And we know that he's filled with the Holy Spirit of God because he is the author of a book of the Holy Scriptures. Of all people, he asks he requests prayer from his church. Can it be that the prayers of the least of us in the household of faith can be effective for a man ministering in apostolic circles? Can our meek and lowly prayers make any real difference? Clearly, our author believes yes. Church, your prayers are heard by God not because of any title that you hold before man. The majority of you will not be elders. Many of you will not be deacons or deaconesses. And many of you won't even be members of the mission task force. We have that. That's the name of it. <laughs> Yet, you have access to the God of all of creation. 
Our writer knows this. Remember in Hebrews chapter 7, verse 25, he says, Consequently, Jesus Christ is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Church, where is your Savior right now? Is he sleeping? Is he distracted? Or is he actively, in this very moment, mediating on our behalf at the right hand of the Father in heaven? So pray for your leaders, he says. Pray for me. As we read in Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Let us draw near to the throne of grace in prayer. Not when our leaders are, are not living honorably, but pray always as they joyfully keep watch over our souls. And as a good leader would, as a good pastor would, he then turns and he prays for his people, which we call the benediction prayer. Let's read this together. Verses 20 and 21. This will be the main focus of our sermon this morning. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This simple one-sentence prayer consists of four parts. We have the invocation, we have two movements of God's work, and we have a doxology. And within these four parts, I'm personally convinced, church, that our writer, in short, is giving his people a summation of the book as a whole. Though this may not be obvious on your first reading, I hope to draw up out of its depths our main point, that peace is only found in God through Jesus Christ, and we must believe it and proclaim it. Of this prayer, John Owen says, it is a glorious prayer, including the whole mystery of divine grace, both its origin and the way it's brought back Jesus Christ from the dead. And he prays that the fruit of all he had instructed them about may be grown in them for the substance of the whole doctrinal part of the letter is included here. That's a big statement. Now may the God of peace, it begins. This, the title of God, the God of peace, is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. And it's only found in three other places in the New Testament in Pauline literature. But when a title is linked to the name of God, it is always significant. In the Old Testament, when a title was given to God, it was linked to the people's circumstances. It was called upon for a specific purpose, for a need. For example, when the people were at war, they would often call upon the strong arm of the Lord to defend them. Or if a person was caught in sin, they would call upon the God of mercy. The title of God correlated to the pressing needs of God's people. And the title we have this morning is the God of peace, Theos Irene. When we think of peace 
it's normal to define it by the negative, right? That's how I normally think of peace. Peace is, well, it's the absence of war. Peace is the absence of hate. Peace is the absence of death and disease and COVID-19. But it's so much more than the abolishment of war and hate and disease and death. There's a positive connotation that's more associated with the word than the negative. In the Old Testament, the common greeting for God's people was, as you may know, shalom. Shalom means peace. It means wholeness. It has the idea that all things are well. And shalom exists when all things are restored to wholeness. It is when all our needs are met. And we not only live in harmony, but we live and cooperate for the betterment of the other person. Just like our leaders and teachers today, the leaders and teachers of the Old Testament have failed to bring shalom to God's people. We know this. So God makes a covenant of shalom. God makes a covenant of peace. And he sends a prince of shalom. He sends a prince of peace to the world. And when that prince was born, an announcement from the angels went forth to shepherds in the field saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Irene, peace. The Greek word meaning a state of tranquility over nations and one's soul. Do you long for that? I long for that. Peace, wellness, health, safety, security, shalom. It is the peace we all long for in this tempestuous world. As many of you know, we've shared before that often Ryan, Pastor Ryan and I will, will go to the Colorado School of Mines on Wednesdays and we go to share the gospel with students and really anyone on campus. Uh, a few of you join us regularly for that. And it amazes me how often this happens, that when I talk to people who outright reject Christianity, and I start to talk to them about what they think will happen when they die, they describe pretty similar the God that's revealed in the scriptures. It's really strange. Let me explain. I may be talking to an agnostic, someone who believes there's an originator of all things, but that originator is unknowable. And through the law of God, I am sometimes able to get them to admit that they are sinners and that they're guilty. And we can also agree easily that the world is broken and they feel a longing for peace in the world and in themselves. They recognize that they can't do anything about the reality of their guilt when they meet a perfect judge. And then they'll say something like this. I hope that when I meet God, he will have mercy. And he knows that I can't fix my guilt. I hope he will not judge me for my sins. I then reply... So what I'm hearing you say is that you hope there is a God that is gracious towards sinners. You hope there's a God that won't bring wrath and judgment on you. You hope there is a God that will be, bring peace on earth and goodwill to all men. Well, do I have news for you. <laughs> the God of peace is the author of this desirous reality. 
We may approach the throne of grace without fear or guilt, not because we earned the right to be with a perfect God forever, but because of Christ and what he has done to bring about the reality of peace. Amen? What hope is there for the unredeemed who cross the horizon of death and are met with a perfect holy judge? A judge who didn't even hold back the wrath from his own son, yet they hope that, they, that he would hold his wrath back for them? What hope do God-haters and idol worshipers have on the day that they meet God? So again, I remind you, beloved, that peace is only experienced in God through Christ. And we must believe it. And we must proclaim it. We now move past the invocation and we start to see the working of God in the prayer. There's two workings of God. First, what God has worked through Christ. And then secondly, what God is going to work through his church. We read now, May the God of peace who brought again from the dead, our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant. So what is the work of God of peace? What work does a God of peace bring? It is, of course, the gospel of the grace of God. It was through shedding another's blood that we have peace. Hear the words of scripture. Uh, You can write them down. You don't need to turn there. Ephesians 2, 13 and 14. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Who has made us both one and broken down in his flesh the dividing walls of hostility. Do you hear shalom there? The restoration of all things? Romans 5.1, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.19-20, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. That's just a few. That's just a few verses. On the cross, the blood was spilled. The new covenant was inaugurated. And the God of peace raised Christ from the dead. Amen? On mentioning the the raising of Christ from the dead here, the author may have in mind Isaiah 63. Please turn to Isaiah 63 so we can consider this. Verses 11 through 14. We read Isaiah 63, 11 through 14. Then he remembered the days of old, of Moses and his people. So we're speaking of Moses here of the Old Testament. We're speaking of the Exodus. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit? Who caused his glorious arm, there we go, title of the Lord, to go at the right hand of Moses. Who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name? Who led them through the depths like a horse in the desert so they did not stumble? Like livestock, they go down into the valley. The spirit of the Lord gave them rest. 
So you led your people to make yourself a glorious name. The author is getting here is, is the answer Moses or is it God? Of course it's God. As with Moses, filled with the Holy Spirit, leading the people of God from the bondage of slavery into the promised land of Canaan, Christ is now leading his people to find rest and peace for his glorious namesake. Jesus Christ, be glory forever and ever. Amen, we read. In 1892, Brooke Westcott, in his commentary on the Hebrews, wrote, The work of Moses was a shadow. The work of Moses was a shadow of that of Christ. The leading up of him with his people out of the sea was a shadow of Christ's ascent from the, from the grave. Excuse me. The covenant with Israel was a shadow of the eternal covenant. Jesus was brought up from death by the blood of the eternal covenant, meaning that Christ's resurrection is a demonstration that his sacrifice of himself has been accepted by God in the new covenant established on the basis of that sacrifice. What I just said there, if you missed it, was that the blood of the eternal covenant, the blood of Christ, is the power and means by which Christ was raised from the dead. And if that blood raised Christ from the dead, then we can be certain that that blood is effectuate to bring us from the dead. But we also read that Jesus is given a title. The Father is the God of peace. Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep. The threefold office of Christ is identified all within this title, great shepherd. Three offices being the prophet, the priest, and the king. The prophet feeds his sheep with truth and life. The priest lays down his life for the sheep, and the king feeds, rules, and instructs. Now get this about the book of Hebrews and remember this. The book of Hebrews, unlike any other biblical book, promotes the necessity and significance of Christ's priesthood. If you want to consider the priesthood of Christ, there is but one book to consider, and that is Hebrews. In fact, no other book in the Old or New Testament makes declarative statements that Jesus truly is the great high priest. None. You will not find it clearly spoken of in the Gospels, in the writings of Peter, James, or John, or even in the epistles of Paul. And the writer, it's so important that we understand Christ to be the acceptable high priest of God that he nails the point home so hard that in every chapter, all 13, he makes descriptive and declarative statements that Christ is the great high priest. And Jesus points forward to how he will shepherd his people, how he will act in his priestly ministry for his people by dying for them. John 10, 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And he did. Amen. Jesus did lay down his life for the sheep as the chief priest. And the God of peace raised him from the dead because his sacrifice was worthy. 
and it did what it was meant to do. And our shepherd lives. And our shepherd brings shalom between us and man. Now, up to this point in the prayer, the author has identified what the God of peace has done to Jesus. And now he shifts his focus to what God is asked to do in the lives of his listeners through Jesus. Let's read in verse 21. Now may the God of peace equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. The close of his prayer. So now we are brought to the request of the prayer. He requests something for his people. That, pa- that the power with which God raised Christ from the dead be applied to the people of God so that they may persevere in the faith. Namely, that they may believe more and proclaim more in the gospel of peace. If verse 20 was looking back on the work that God completed in Christ, accepted fully and finally by God in heaven, then verse 21 is looking forward with the same power in the work of his people. And what does God do with this resurrection power? Well, he equips you with everything good to do his will. That word equipped, meaning fit or able, Spurgeon explains it this way. He says that that Greek word properly understood means to reset a bone that's dislocated. Have you ever seen a person dislocate a bone? It's super gross. It's really uncomfortable. A few weeks ago, I was at a a Colorado School of Mines wrestling match, and one of the wrestlers dislocated his elbow. Everyone said, ooh, at the same time. (laughs) Now imagine the coach from the side of the mat yell out to the wrestler, keep wrestling. His arms, you know, keep going. Set up a low single, take him down, score. It's absurd. His arm popped, they stopped the match. The EMT ran out to take care of the significant injury that this wrestler had. Yet, dislocation is the state of fallen humanity. Dislocation is the effect of sin on us spiritually. We are not in proper shape to do the will of God, we're told. Without redemption through the blood of Christ, we are as useful to God's will as the wrestler who is useful to throw a headlock with a dislocated elbow. It's not going to happen. Or I wouldn't want to see it. But God, he equips us. He resets the dislocation. He restores us to shalom of usefulness. May we only have the spiritual eyes to see who we truly are. And God equips us with everything good. Now, what good things does God bring about through Jesus Christ? Of course, we know this to be life, regeneration. We are a new creation in Christ. Just as Jesus was raised from the dead, we are raised to life. We are equipped with life. And the God of Shalom gives us life, restores and equips us to do his will. And he affects in us that which is pleasing to him. We read, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. He's working in us the things that are pleasing to him. 
You might have thought in the, that the apostle would have wrote something like this. Lord, you have equipped us and made us fit for your work, so now help us to serve you. But that's not what he says. He puts it in a more humbler form and asks the Lord to do the work through us. We're equipped so God now can work through us. That's a heavy blow to self-glory, everyone. Here we're faced with that delicate balance between God's supreme ordination of all things and the biblical commands for us to be obedient. We're talking of the biblical friendship between God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. On the one hand, we're equipped to do God's will, which is to love God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and to love and serve our neighbors as ourselves as well as make, making disciples of all nations, right? We're commanded. Well, on the other hand, everything good that comes from us is because God has worked in it and through us. Why do we desire to love God? Because God brought us back spiritually from the dead and Christ has equipped us with a new heart. Why do we share the hope that is found within us? Because the spirit of God is moving in ways that we cannot manufacture ourselves. And God is pleased and God is glorified. To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. To glorify God, church, is the object goal of us all. That we could participate in the glory of God is an underappreciated reality. There is nothing greater a human can do but to reflect the glory of their God. Meditate on that. Learn to be humbled by it and allow it to guide your life and your affections. Believe it more. Proclaim it more. In the midst of this, give thanks to God that he does not deal with you apart from through Christ. Thanks be to God that he deals with you through the completed work of Christ. Have mercy on those who God deals with without the, mere, uh, the mediatorial work of Christ. Have mercy on them. The work of God in believers is not to store up wrath on the day of judgment. Instead, it is our sanctification. It is the constant flow of grace from God through the constant presence of Christ who enables the sanctification through life. Now, if God didn't raise Christ from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant then we are without hope. If Jesus' body is somewhere out there, buried in a tomb across the ocean, forgotten about, what chance do we have? But the God of peace raised our Lord Jesus from the dead. And Jesus is our Lord and Savior through his own blood. Now the God of peace who raised you from spiritual death and who will raise your body in the end will equip you for the glory of Jesus forever and ever. So as we close our series in the book of Hebrews, I hope and I have prayed that we would be more humbled by the superiority of Christ in every way. And that we believe and proclaim the real peace found in God through Christ, our high priest. And church, in the midst of your sorrows, and your doubts, and if you face persecution, 
if you're heavy laden by, the, by world relations, if the relationship with your parents is, is broken or with your child or if you're dealing with disappointment, believe and proclaim that we have a God of peace that surpasses all understanding, who will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. This is a struggle I'm preaching to myself. I struggle to think in the moments of doubt and sorrow, the God of peace, the God of peace. Yet that is where we must go. We should believe like the hymnist writes, when peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Lord, you are the God of peace. And we as a distracted people are too eager to run to find peace in anything except you. When we are overwhelmed by there not being enough peace in the world, we turn to internet forums. When we are displeased We don't turn to the God of peace. We go and we talk to other people first, sometimes never even going to you, the God of peace. But you've gone as far as you could go by laying down the life of the great shepherd and raising him back from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant to give us peace. And may we believe it and proclaim it for your glory and for our good. In Christ's name we pray, amen.